How do you know when someone is listening to you? Or I should say, how do you know when someone isn't listening to you? What, is the, what are the clues that they're not paying attention? Failure to make eye contact. People look over your shoulder, right? They're, they're sometimes maybe they're looking for a better conversation. Uh, sometimes people do that. Uh, making a counterpoint that reveals that they actually weren't listening to us at all. They're just totally talking about something entirely different. Common in our day. Multitasking, right? Or should I, should I say multi-texting? Right? We're talking to them, and then they pull, there's a phone, and they're, or, you know, now it's the watch, right? And all this stuff's going on, and it's, you're not really listening to me. We're texting, we're, we're reading, we're taking a phone call. All these things are clues that someone's not really listening to us when we're talking. As much as I've personally experienced some of these things, I'm often very guilty of the same. Some of you know that I like to listen to records. My wife's not here, but I, lis- I like to listen to records. And sometimes, you know, when I'm listening to a record, you've got to flip the record over, right? I don't have an automatic turntable. So, so you have to flip the turntable over. Well, sometimes when Kate's talking to me, really what I'm doing is I'm listening for the sound of the end of the record. <laughs> so I can flip it over because I don't want it to just sit there on the wrong side. And so uh, that's something I'm guilty, uh, guilty of doing. Of course, I could just use the Bluetooth speaker next to my turntable, but that's not the point. <clears throat> if I'm kind to myself in, those example, in, in that example, well, I'm, I'm being a little fickle. I am being inconsiderate of my wife, not considering her better than myself as I'm listening to her talk. On the other hand, if I'm being real, I'm being honest, I'm, I'm really being disloyal to her. I'm being unfaithful to her by not showing her and listening to her in the way that would be appropriate to the love that Christ has for me and the love I'm supposed to show to my wife. Even if I need to personally grow in this area of listening more than you, we all likely need to grow in some areas here or with this, with this uh, issue. And yet that, that is just a foil, I make that point as a foiler, to complement a greater point this morning. And that point comes from 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. You can just listen. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And then John says, and this is the confidence, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's God. He hears us. And so where we might be fickle, inconsiderate, disloyal, or unfaithful in our listening, may it never be with God. We have this confidence, again, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This means today, in this moment, this morning, we, if we stand in a position of belief, if we have believed in him, then the God of the universe, the great God Almighty, hears our prayers. He hears us. If God were a giant, this is the picture I had in my head, if God were a giant, his face would be pressed up against the side of this building, listening. If God were a spy, well, he'd have the room tapped He would be able to hear our prayers. 
And so therefore, standing in this confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, this is our big idea this morning. This is what we're after. This morning, we're going to make two appeals to God in order that he might preserve us for his name's sake. Two appeals to God in order that he might preserve us for his name's sake. That's the big idea. That's our thesis this morning. If you haven't turned to Psalm 143, Ron read it this morning, uh, you can do that now. We'll look at Psalm 143. Excuse me. This psalm can be divided into two parts, verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 12. And the first appeal appeal will be in verses 1 through 6. The first appeal is, we'll capture it with two words. It's the first point of our outline. Pay attention. Pay attention. In these verses, David is soliciting God. He's crying out to God, pay attention. Pay attention to my cry for preservation and for deliverance. As we begin, as we think about David's prayer in this psalm, what we must understand is that David has a very high view of God. A very high view of God. What do I mean by that? Let me just glance over at Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness, David says, is unsearchable. God's greatness is unsearchable. David believes, rightly, that God's greatness is unsearchable. David is saying that the magnitude of God's person and his works determine the magnitude of his greatness. We have the phrase, finding a needle in a haystack. You know that phrase. Well, I'm sure that's tremendously difficult. I don't know if anyone's ever tried to actually do that. But it does exist within the realm of possibility that you would find a needle in a haystack. Still a possibility. Take space, for example, outer space. Space is described as a boundless three-dimensional continuum. Kind of a fancy way of explaining what space is. A boundless three-dimensional continuum. That being said, if an object were to exist in that boundless space, even if it were lost for a thousand years, 10,000 years, there's still the possibility that it might be found. Yet David tells us that the greatness of God is unsearchable. It is unsearchable. To search out the greatness of God, to search out God's person, is not akin to finding a needle in a haystack. It's not akin to finding something in a boundless three-dimensional continuum. To speak of God, to appeal to God, is to speak and to appeal to one who is and exists on an entirely different plane. Entirely different plane. His existence transcends all perceptions and all experiences. He has no beginning, and he has no end. The theologian has captured this in the phrase, God is timeless eternal. He's timeless eternal. He has full knowledge of everything that ever was and ever is and ever will be. God searches out the minds and hearts of every person at every moment simultaneously. And yet he says, Proverbs 21.1, 
The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God not only knows all, but somehow in taking in all of the knowledge at every moment, every thought, with every person, he in that in, also he engages in that moment. He's active in the world while doing all of that. All of this, and we've really said nothing about the height and depth and breadth of his immensity, his omnipresence, his perfection, God's goodness, his faithfulness, his love, his mercy, his grace, his long-suffering, his holiness, his righteousness and justice, his blessedness and glory. No man in the Bible may have spent more time thinking and meditating on God than David, and yet he declares that God's greatness is unsearchable. It wasn't enough time. A lifetime is not enough time, even the best lifetime. Thus, this then is David's mindset as he appeals to God in Psalm 143. We have to understand that's how he's coming to God with this understanding of who God is, a very high view of God. Now, what, is this, what does this high view of God change about how we appeal to God? What is, what is the effect of that high view of God when we approach God in prayer? What does it look like? We'll look at verses one and two. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. Notice verse 1, give ear to my pleas for mercy. This is literally a prayer for God's grace. He's pleading for God's grace. Grace is God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. That's what grace is. David understands that as he approaches this God. And while God has certainly extended his common grace to all persons, he provides warm sun and rain for all people, David is pleading for more than common grace. He's pleading for a kind of special grace, aid, help from God. We'll see here in the psalm, David has found himself between a rock and a hard place, as the cliche goes. David isn't standing on some mountain, free from danger, pointing his hopes to the sky and declaring, give ear to my pleas for mercy. That's not, God, that's not David's situation. On the contrary, David is in a dark place, and his soul is troubled. David's approach to God in these first two verses is an invocation, you might say. It's a request, an intercession. It's an entreaty from a servant, from a servant. That's what David says in verse two. Enter not into judgment with your servant. This word, servant, or this role, is important to the meaning of the psalm. Look at the very last phrase of the psalm. For I am, David says, your servant. If this psalm were a painting, this word would be the the frame of the painting. 
If this psalm were a bridge, the idea of a servant would be the on-ramp and the off-ramp. The servant role is really what holds the psalm together. It's the thing that validates the psalm. If David can't say that he's God's servant, there's nothing here. There's no teeth. It's one thing to recognize the unsearchable nature of God. It's another thing to consider oneself a servant of that God. Those are two different things. In fact, this difference is as stark as the difference between Jesus and the demons. Isn't that what James 2.19 says? You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons believe in God. The demons know full well that God is unsearchable. They know that. They exist in that other realm. And so they know his greatness. They just don't submit to it. They don't declare that they're a servant of God. Compare this to Jesus who said in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came to be served, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his his life as a ransom for many. What am I getting at? What's the point? It's not enough to recognize the unsearchable nature of God. If you sit today and you say, I'm a God-fearer, You're as good as a demon. (laughs) You must be a servant of God. You must be more. You must be God's servant. To model our lives after Jesus, to make ourselves equal with David, we have to take another step. We have to take that step of being a servant of God. This this much must be our approach. This is the on-ramp to appealing to God is to acknowledge that we are his servants. Notice the conjunction that follows that phrase, your servant, for, it says. In the Hebrew, this is what they call a key, call, key clause. It's a causal statement. It answers the question, why? Why is David a servant? ESV says for, but you could say because, which would be clearer. Here's why. Because no one living is righteous before you. What other choice do we have? That's why David's a servant. As David looks up to the sky and takes in all that God is, and as David looks within himself and takes in all that he is, his utter sinfulness dawns on him. This is why he says, enter not into judgment. He he understands his sinfulness. David realizes that he deserves judgment. It may be, in fact, that this situation, whatever it is, he may be here because of his own sin. He may be lying here in his own bed, the bed that he made, you might say. David's own unrighteousness behavior, unrighteous behavior, may have resulted in these troubles that he is encountering. It's interesting, David sees his own sin against the backdrop of mankind. Notice he says, no one living. No one living is righteous before God. David visualizes his sinfulness within the larger context of the universal sinfulness of mankind. And in so doing, he recognizes the weight, the weight of his failure before God. 
He's not on an island. We're on a continent. (laughs) No one living is righteous before God, before this unsearchable greatness of God. It's a weight that isn't his own. It's a weight we all carry. No one can carry it. It's too much. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It's common. Understand, David is not pointing to others in order to downplay his own guilt. That's not the point. We do that sometimes, right? When we use the phrase, nobody's perfect. Isn't that what we're doing? We're downplaying our own sin. We're excusing it. Nobody's perfect. Don't be so hard on me. That's not what David is doing at all here. No way. May it never be. Quite the opposite. David looks out upon humanity. He sees how enslaved we all are to sin. He sees how incapable man is of freeing himself from the utter seriousness and power of sin. Like Peter told the magician in Acts chapter 8, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That's a bad place. From this position, David realizes there's only but one option. There's only one place to go, one thing to do. There's only one way open left to him. David must throw himself upon the grace of God. This is why he cries out for God's grace. He must throw himself fully on who God is. David is fully aware of the reality and power of wrongdoing. When he holds up his own morality before God, it is immediately, immediately swallowed up by the divine absolute. It's too much. God is too much. God is too righteous. He's too perfect. David must make no, David can make no demand on, upon God. David must throw himself, therefore, upon the mercy of God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is David's cry. Verses 1 and 2, then, we have the invocation. It's only when we've come to such a place that we might dare to complain you can't, come to, you can't complain to God. You can't utter your lament to God until you recognize these first things. Once you do, now you can complain. Now you can lament. And we have that lamentation in verses 3 and 4. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness Like those long dead, therefore, David says, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. It's it's shock, is what he's saying there. We don't know much about David's situation. The psalm doesn't tell us. There's some speculation, but we really don't know what his situation is. What we do know, though, is, is he's in a troubling situation. Three phrases capture the situation. My enemy has pursued my life, it says crushed my life to the ground, and made me sit in darkness. And as a result, David says, he's like those long dead. This is his situation. When David considers his situation, death is the only potential outcome. It's the only logical conclusion to what's happening. I'm going to die. 
I'm not going to survive what's happening here. The external afflictions combined with an inward sense of helplessness, and he's robbed of his energy. His spirit and his heart faint within him. David is languishing and feels his body growing stiff from dead, from death. David is on the verge of despair. Can you relate? Have you had those moments in your life where you just feel like you can't go on? That you're dead? You're as good as dead? How often are verses 3 and 4, or do these verses summarize our life? How often do they become a summary of our situation? Maybe it's a season, maybe it's a day, maybe it's a minute, but it's there. We know what it feels like to be this close, be this hopeless, be be reaching for so much aid from our Lord. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, Paul says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. It was over. The persecution was so hard that we just knew we weren't going to make it. If you're on the verge of despair, if you've despaired of life itself, well, at least we know we're in good company. David was in this place. Paul was in this place. It's not uncommon. Such mighty men of God as David and Paul felt such emotions. You ever hear people say, God won't give you more than you can handle? You ever hear people say that? Let's test drive that against David's experience. Does it sound like David was facing more than he could handle? I think it does. Absolutely. That's what David is saying. That's the whole point. David is saying, We're taking on water. We're sinking. I can't handle it. I need your help, Lord. That's what David is saying. Therefore, I reject the notion. I absolutely reject the notion that God will give you more than you can handle, that he won't give you more than you can handle. On the basis of Psalm 143, I reject it. And that's just this one psalm. What about David's, Paul's words we just read? He despaired of life itself. The sentence of death was upon him. I actually think the opposite is true. I think God will and often does give us more than we can handle. That's what's true. And why does he do that? Why does God give us more than we can handle? to totally remove any amount of self-sufficiency in our life. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to vanquish self-sufficiency. He wants self-reliance completely gone from our life. That's what he wants. 
And so he pushes us so far that the only choice that you have is to throw yourself upon him. So yes, God will and does give you more than you can handle. And it's for your good. So you could remove self-sufficiency and self-reliance and trust on that great big God. Oh, that we would see the fruit that can be ours through the pain of loss. To be brought to the edge of death where all self-sufficiency has been wrung dry and the only path forward is to throw ourselves into the hands of an almighty God. There's so much fruit there. There's so much joy there. But it's so hard. It is so hard. Church, in, in saying this, in asking, us of, asking this from us, God is not asking us for something that's impossible. It is not impossible. While God requires from us more than we can do, God doesn't require of us more than we can do without his strength and power. Listen to John Owen. I love this quote. It's like the one time that you can actually make sense of what Owen says, because you so often can't. Owen says, quote, the duties that God requires at our hands are not proportioned to what strength we have in ourselves, but to what help and relief is laid up for us in Christ. And he says, we are to address ourselves to the greatest performance with a settled persuasion that we have not the ability for the least. I know that's confusing. This is what he's saying. Owen is saying not only that Christ will meet us in our weaknesses, but that we should operate, we should function with a settled persuasion, he says, that we are insufficient in ourselves. And we have, he says, not the ability in the least to save ourselves from trouble. That's what Owen's saying. Church, if we do not accept that God allows suffering and trials into our lives to put to death self-reliance, then I believe we're like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. But, on the other hand, if we recognize our position before such a great God, that he desires to vanquish every ounce of self-sufficiency from us by giving us by giving us more than we can handle, then we'll become like the wise man who built his house on the rock. When the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Verses 1 and 2, David pleads for God's grace. He invokes the Lord for mercy. In verses 3 and 4, David presents his case to God. That's the lament. He laments his situation. In verses 5 and 6, then, David offers a retrospect. A retrospect. Although David is covered in darkness, there, there appears to be a single beam of light to reprieve him. He peers out from the pangs of death, and he declares in verses 5 and 6, I remember the days of old. 
I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Selah. I remember, I meditate, I ponder. And David is not looking back on the history of men. He's looking back on the history of God. God's history. The works of history's greatest historical figures, Abraham Lincoln, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Martin Luther, Albert Einstein. These compare nothing, compare nothing to the works of the greatest figure, Almighty God. It's the deeds and actions of God that are central in David's mind in these verses. And as David fills his mind with all that God has done for him, what is the result? Verse 6, the longer David muses, the stronger his desire for God grows. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. While in the wilderness, a hidden spring begins to well up. The yearning for God has aroused in David something. It's a will to live. It's there. And so he cries out to his his God like the hard and broken earth cries out for rain. David is a parched land that longs for refreshing rain. To borrow a phrase from Psalm 36, David longs for God as the fountain of life. Here we should notice that little word, selah. You see that there in the text. Sometimes we don't read it. Some translations just say interlude there. Is a musical interlude or a pause. Imagine if this psalm were a song, which it is. That's what a psalm is. Imagine it was a song. Well, this would be the part of the song where we're given space to think about what was just said. There's space left here for a musical interlude to reflect on what we just learned. That's what Selah means. That's the point of it. Spurgeon said, quote, let us read the passage which proceeds with greater earnestness, earnestness, for surely there is always something excellent where we are required to rest and pause and meditate. A selah is an invitation for us to think about what's been said and to respond. And this is the very last selah found in the Psalms. So if you think about the book as a whole, you approach the book of Psalms that way. We don't usually do that. We just kind of pick and choose these chapters out. But if you think about it as a whole book, this is the last moment in this psalm as a whole where there's going to be an interlude, where we pause and we wait. You could think about what's just been said in Psalm 143, but you could think all the way back. It'd be a long interlude. But you could think about all that's been said. That's what this Selah is doing here. God wants us to stop and think about what we've just learned. So what question would we ask at this point? What would we meditate on? What is it? Is it our self-reliance? Is it our longing for God? 
Is it our approach to God? How big is your God? Why do we thirst for God? Why do you thirst for him? What would your prayer be? How would you pray? first half of the psalm, we discovered David's first appeal to the Lord. We captured that appeal with two words, pay attention. Second appeal, verses 7 through 12, we could capture with two other words, take action. Take action. The temple of the psalm picks up at this point. The verses quicken. We find ourselves out of breath. Just take a glance at the verses. Answer me quickly. Hide not your face from me. Let me hear you in the morning. Make me know the way I should go. Deliver me from my enemies. Teach me to do your will. Let your good spirit lead me. Remember, David is under the threat of his life. He needs help. And he needs it fast, and yet he realizes again that he needs the hand of God to guide him. There's something very encouraging about verse 8. At least we know the darkness will not end. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. At least the Lord will hear us in the morning, and the morning will come. There's a lot we might say about verses 8 through 10. Let me draw your attention to just a couple things. I realize our time is getting away from us this morning. We have much to do. Forgive me for that. In these verses, David makes three requests for divine instruction. Verse 8, make me know the way I should go. Teach me to do your will, he says in verse 10. Let your good spirit lead me. And while he makes three requests for divine instruction... He only makes one request for divine intervention. That comes in verse 9, first part of verse 9. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. What's the point? I think David sees a connection between obedience and deliverance. And there is a connection there. Not that obedience guarantees deliverance, but all things being equal, God rescues those who are obedient to his word. And so, so David wants to, to be obedient. Make me sh- show me your way. Teach me. I want to obey you. I want to be rescued. 
You know, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will do what? Make straight your paths. You could write down Psalm 8411, Joshua 1.8, James 1.12. These are all examples that demonstrate there's a blessing in obedience that God rescues and delivers those who are obedient. We should never struggle with a call to obedience. David understands that God rescues those who are obedient to his word. And the basis or grounds of this request reveals that David's pursuit of obedience is absolutely pure. It's absolutely pure. Look again at verse 8. For in you I trust, he says. For to you I lift up my soul. I have fled to you for refuge, he says in verse 9. I know I'm bouncing around. I'm just kind of drawing out some of these truths. Verse 10, for you are my God. You might say David's request is theocentric. It's very focused on God. It's pure. And so as we come to the end of verse 10, something new is beginning to emerge in David. What's beginning to emerge is confidence. It's confidence. David's prayer has resulted in a new confidence in what God's will, what God will do for him. Look at the second half of verse 10. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. David expects some kind of manifestation of God in personal power. He expects that God's good spirit will lead him to level ground. This is a metaphor, of course. It depicts a life free of danger. And so David has longed for God's response in this psalm. He has begged for God's rescue. And finally, he rests in God's reliability. Verse 11 and 12, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. David trusts that God will take action. Notice the reason why God will take action in verse 11, for his name's sake, for God's purposes. David has saved the best for last in these verses, crying out to God for his sake and not for, for God's sake and not for David's. And so we, we come full circle with this last phrase in the psalm, for I am your servant. As I said, this, this role of servant is the on-ramp and the on, off-ramp to this psalm. It's where we find that we can call out to God, pay attention. And it's where we find that we can cry out to God, take action, which is what David does in the psalm. Let me summarize the psalm. We might say, while David was a mature believer, he still believes, he still believed that he had much to learn from God. He had the spiritual insight to know that he could know God better and he would be safer if his life was conformed to God's will. So he's crying out to God here. And as a, as a result, David surrendered his life to God's will, knowing that the will of God is always good, acceptable, and perfect. And having surrendered to God's will, whether for victory, for vindication, for defeat, disgrace, or even death, 
God's will would be done. Whatever the, outcome, whatever the outcome, David seems to know that there's always something better in store for those who seek out God's ways. What does the psalm teach us? We must learn to trust him. When we're under dis- distress, we must learn to trust God. The life of David, David, David's life demonstrates this. We must learn it again and again. Every trial is an opportunity to learn to trust God. We must learn to trust him. We must long for him, as verse 6 says. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. We must live as servants of God. These are the bookends of this psalm, that we are God's servant. And so in light of all of this, how then shall we pray? How shall we pray? Well, I've written a prayer, and I'd like to share it with you, and I'd like to share it with you outside. I've kept you till noon, and so I'll walk you out the door too.